welcome back to another episode of the R Squared Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Levy. We're going to be doing something a little bit different in this episode. We're going to be talking to three different Nylon Calculus writers, Nathan Walker, Andrew Johnson, and Nick Restifo. Uh, All three um, created wind projections uh, at Nylon Calculus this season, um, and all three used slightly different methodologies and underlying metrics. So we've got them on uh, separately. They're each going to talk about their projections, their techniques, um, and some of the stuff they found. All right, Nathan, welcome back. Uh, we're here to talk about wind projections again, and we uh, had you on uh, last year about the same time to touch on your wind projections, uh, and they did very well last year, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Thanks for having me. They did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, this episode, we're going to have uh, we're going to talk to you and Andrew and Nick, sort of back to back to back, and talk about your different systems. So I'm wondering if you can start by sort of explaining uh, the methodology, how your wind projections are produced, and then um, I know you've been doing this for a long time, and you sort of tweak the model every year. So what's new in your in your methodology this year? Sure. Yeah. Um, so. The main thing I tried to do this year um, that was different was to incorporate a um, a usage adjustment that was based on some sort of empirical evidence. Uh, last the last two seasons uh, I had usage adjustments, but they were just 100% eyeballed. It was like, hey, if this team has way too many scores, they're going to do bad, and also, hey, if or excuse me, I'll slow down. If this team has way too many scores, they're gonna do worse than the projection would say otherwise, and vice, and not vice versa. It would also be the case if they didn't have a lot of scoring. So you know, we'd assume if you have ten Nick Collisons on your team, they're not gonna score. Um, so I was, I just sort of eyeballed that based on uh, how much usage the players had in prior seasons. Um, so this season, uh, what I did was I. Um, tried to find out the best way to do this uh, after I, I didn't have a whole lot of extra time over the summer, but in in my free time, I spent many hours trying to come up with a simple system uh, to adjust for um, fit, player fit, or types of teams. And the only thing I could come up with was uh, just based on prior uh, teammates' usage by which I mean uh, how much usage your teammates used in a prior year, uh, how that affected your um, output. Um, and the way I measured that output was through box plus minus. So all this I use via uh, Daniel Meyer's um, box plus minus metric spreadsheet. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about how this usage adjustment, uh, how the the usage adjustment works. And I know it's something that we talked about a little bit last year on the podcast when you were making those manual adjustments. Um, But I think it's really interesting because the way the way it affects the statistical model, I think, is counterintuitive Uh to the way people think about the combination of usage when looking at lineups. I agree. Yeah. So honestly, one of the reasons I'm not feeling I'm not feeling excellent about my projections or as excellent as I have in the past is because of this counterintuitive result. Um, so um, uh, the analysis I ran was for every NBA team season uh, since 19, I think 84, which is when uh, as far back as box plus minus has information. 
uh, somewhere around there. Uh, and I just looked and um, had to do a couple of tricks to take care of rookies and that sort of thing. But basically, um, it would look at a player's box plus minus and uh, when their teammates, it would see how much usage their teammates used the prior year. Um, it would also look at how much usage that player used the prior year. Um, so, if, for example, if a player was a higher usage player, um, and especially if they had a higher true shooting percentage, which I'll get to. Um, what it found was that players with high usage, high true shooting percentage, and players who have a lot of high-scoring teammates or high-usage teammates, their box plus-minus tend, tended to regress. And by regress, I just mean go down. Like it, regardless of anything else, just on average, it, they, it went down. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the basic result uh, that I found, which is counterintuitive because uh, most of us, Almost anyone would say, hey, you surround this player with uh, higher usage players, they are going to be more efficient. Uh, and as everybody knows, you know, I, I love high usage players, and uh, or for the most part, you know, I, I think that a lot of high usage players are underrated by people that just look at efficiency. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that while those players are adding value on their own, um, throwing them on the court does tend to overall lower their teammates' production, which is pretty intuitive. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so the way you're explaining that, or the way I was thinking about it is, um, so, so people think about like the situation with the Cavs last year, right? You add LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love, and everybody's, uh, everybody's efficiency should theoretically improve because they're, they're sharing the usage and they'll be able to take better shots and lower their responsibilities. But because box plus minus is a metric that captures efficiency and quantity, they will, while they may be more efficient, they will be contributing less in the quantity department because the load will be shared, shared and thus by box plus minus they would look less productive. Is that right? That, that, that's an easy way of saying it, yeah. Um, yeah, kind of like we discussed last year. Um, and so, the right, their overall value by box plus minus would go down. Um, and another kind of strange reason for that, um, and that it's just sort of complicated to think about, but uh, one of the reasons that higher usage players look better in box plus minus is their ability to do what you just said. Um, so it sort of has a compounded effect, I guess. Um, when a bunch of high usage players get together, their value not only decreases uh, among one another by their ability to create, but it also decreases because... They don't get that added benefit. They're not helping out low-usage guys, if you will. Um, the the low-usage people aren't there for them to help out. So it's not just – yeah, so – so you're so you're saying that when you did this usage study, you found that um, like LeBron would theoretically increase James Jones' efficiency more than Kevin Love's or Kyrie Irving's. Or his efficiency – if. I would say efficiency isn't the best word. At least his box plus minus. At least what we okay. estimate his uh, total contribution per 100 possessions to be. Okay. So, so what you found then is, and make sure I'm understanding this right. Yeah. So what you found then is in in these lineups where you're combining high usage players, the 
individual uh, the individual ratings of the players are declining because they're sort of sharing the production. But what was the effect on the on the overall lineup? Was the lineup did it did it offset and make the lineup better, or was there right. actually a, a regression effect there too? Yeah. So because I because I wasn't basically because of the way I did the study, I wasn't able to look at the lineup as a whole, and that's sort okay. of an unfortunate side effect of this study, um, because I didn't have rookie information and that sort of thing, I didn't want to miss out on a whole chunk of information of a lineup just because I didn't know what uh, rookies, you know, prior usage was. Um, so the only sort of math that went into this was how each individual player, uh, how that, how their production changed. But um, since it sort of is an average and as a whole, the number is declining, then it is relatively safe to assume that the whole lineup's um, production decreases. Which is really interesting because the, the effect or the, the, um, the, the implied effect or the assumed effect is put five better players together, their production is better. Right, yeah, which, yeah, it's just, at least in, at least in the NBA and in this study, it wasn't the case. Um, and, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, you can't, they have to share the ball. Um, and that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I did want to so, add um, that I'm I'm kind of okay with that result. You know, I mean, we we saw it. I mean, I've seen it empirically, and that's sort of why I started doing this. I mean, we've seen it with our eyes. Like the Heat weren't as excellent when the three uh, the big three joined together. The Brooklyn Nets were nowhere near what they thought we would they would be. The Lakers weren't as good as we thought they would be. I mean, you could point that to just coaching, um, but and the Cavs last year too. I mean, it's just time after time throwing a whole bunch of players together. You can see, hey, this team's much better, but not as if we just added them together linearly. Um, mm-hmm. So that I understand. The, the the result that this the the strange result that this gives us, and the weirder one is that the reverse has to be true. Um, or at least on average, the reverse is true, which means for my weird projections that adding a bunch of low usage players together uh, increases their individual production on average. And that's why we have the very strange Portland result and part of the reason we have the strange Boston result. Mm-hmm. And so specifically, you've got the Celtics with 52 wins uh, and the second seed in the Eastern Conference behind the Cavs and uh, the Trailblazers at 43 wins and uh, and taking the eighth seed in the Western Conference. Yeah. And to be very fair to the naysayers, you know, these these are not these are not, hey, this is exactly what I think. You know, there's a there's a bit of a error on each of these. Um, but yeah, that is that is sort of the average uh, expectation that my projections sped out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it seems uh, just off the cuff. You're not that far off from other statistical projections on the Celtics. Um, it seems like a lot of other models that we've looked at have them at like 48 or 49. So, you know, yeah. it's not that far. It's not that far out of whack. I think. Uh, I think it seems more out of whack in that most of the other uh, projections we've looked at have somebody else in the East above them. Um, sure. Usually the Bulls and the the Bulls are a little bit lower, the fifth seed in the East in your uh, 
in your model. Um, and so what do you make of the trailblazers? Is this just sort of an aberration of the system or is this, is there maybe something there that we're missing by just sort of mentally subtracting LaMarcus Aldridge and calling it a mess? Yeah. Um, I, I honestly, I think it's, I think people realize that it's pretty difficult to, and I mean, sort of the whole point of this conversation, we realize how difficult it is to see how uh, individual players and teams, how their value and ability changes uh, when you completely change the roster. And obviously losing uh, Marcus Aldridge and Wes Matthews completely changed the Trailblazers roster uh, and what they do with their team. Um, So all that to say, um, people are, I think, somewhat writing off Lillard. Um, I think my projections... Maybe like him a little bit more than, or perhaps view him more, more highly than they ought. Um, I'm sort of of the opinion that part of the reason his offensive output was so good was because Lamarcus Aldridge was, you know, uh, just creating offense in general and leaving him open, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, box plus minus and real plus minus tries to account for that, but you know, it's not perfect. Um, so I would say, uh, but, I'll say underrating it, Lillard's part of it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, but but so they're they're sort of the perfect uh, the perfect storm for your usage adjustments, where they're getting the bump of a single efficient high usage scorer in Lillard, surrounded by a bunch of of low usage. Um, and there are some efficient low usage guys on that team. I mean, it's not like it's. Um, you know, it's not like they're necessarily cobbled together from replacement players. You know, there are some yeah. there's some average talent on that team, mm-hmm. um, but your model is capturing, or, or maybe you think uh, maybe overestimating Lillard's effect on that. Yeah. So uh, I wish I had written this in the article, but Lillard's jump in uh, basically how much usage would increase his projected rating um, if we didn't adjust for his teammates' usage. His jump is the highest. Mm-hmm. So basically, my model looked at everyone and said, okay, well, Lillard is going to take a big share, kind of like Russell Westbrook did last year, um, a bigger share, and he's just going to – his jump is going to be the highest, um, largely because he is going to be taking uh, – he, he is the high-usage player. So this whole team is suffering from a usage anemia, if you will, uh, as a whole. And But Lillard is the one that the usage – will fall to, if you will. And uh, so going back to the Celtics, um, I know you've been tweeting a bunch about their projections and that they are um, setting aside your usage adjustments, that they're sort of this really interesting test case of of what you get when you build a roster with no bad players, not necessarily any clear-cut stars, but you just you just leave out all the bad players right. and in your uh, so in your post you have this awesome graph with the projected minutes to be played by each team based on players from each tier and the Celtics have by far it looks like almost probably by a margin of about 15% of their total minutes uh, by far the fewest uh, number of minutes projected to be played by players who are below average or worse that's right yeah so and and you you know wrote the the great beautiful article on this for sports <laughs> um but i yeah and i feel like you know that's one of the 
themes that came up last year during this podcast is, hey, does this work to some degree? And uh, for the Pacers, I think it it really did. I mean, until the last stretch of games, there, you guys, uh, you guys, I mean, were I mean, that was sort of what we talked about last year. The Pacers didn't have a lot of terrible. Um, they had a, you know some average, a lot of above average, uh, and they did uh, beat Vegas last year by uh, a few games, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, and so, you know, uh, the real plus minus and box plus minus projections look at their team in a similar way. Um, and, I mean, that, that that's part of the equation that I think is hard for us to understand, is that how much bad players hurt our team. And I think that real plus minus and box plus minus do give us, that's one of the more help things, one of the, excuse me, that's one of the things that they're a little bit better at, is sort of examining really bad players. Um, and Boston just doesn't really have a lot. Uh-huh. Um... The Pacers this year, how does your uh, – I mean, I have to ask. Yeah. But, uh, the Pacers this year, how does your model handle somebody like Paul George who essentially has no no sample for last year? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I decided to do was um, not do a whole lot of work on my real plus minus um, sort of projection for that stat, but I did a lot of projection of box plus minus. Um, and for BPM, he didn't really – I had no data on him last year, so uh, that definitely knocked him down a bunch. So there's basically just a placeholder if a player didn't play a season um, that um, my formula my – formula, my uh, projection sort of came up with, if you will, if you don't play a season. Um, and that knocks him down quite a bit. But real plus minus is sort of the opposite, and it sort of acts as though nothing ever happened. Uh, to some degree, if you get injured, real plus minus doesn't really miss you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you come back and things are fine. So uh, I would say we, I, I kind of got lucky with Paul George in the way that the formula turned out, if you will, because I think box plus minus is regressing him a little hard. Uh, my box plus minus projection for him is minus 1.9, and that's looking at three years of data and his uh, output last season, which was... So I guess he did play last season. I'm sorry mm-hmm. for what I said was false there. Um, but his real plus minus projection is super high. Uh, it's plus 4.57 per 100, which is, you know, way up there. Um, and he, he falls in another little chart in your post with Nikola Pekovic, John Henson, Josh McRoberts, and Nick Collison as the players who um, box plus minus and real plus minus disagree on most right. vociferously. Which was because, great word, uh, and that's because... Uh, his his box his box score stats were crap last season, and his real plus minus didn't change a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, well, I, lots of really interesting stuff. Uh, I hope your projections are all right, except for the Pacers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they'll necessarily have to steal a few wins from some other teams to to make the math work. But um, yeah, really cool stuff. Thanks for taking the time and explaining it. And uh, yeah, we'll check in with you again during the year on some other stuff. Thanks for watching. Our second guest on the Wind Projections podcast is Andrew Johnson from Nylon Calculus. How are you doing, Andrew? Good, good. 
Um, so I don't know if you know this. I just saw this on Twitter as I was switching over and getting ready. But uh, they somebody just tweeted at Nylon Calculus. Apparently they had the um, – on the Celtics broadcast, they broadcast a little graph with wind projections from a bunch of different websites for the Celtics. And it looked like the Celtics were on there at 49 wins, which I think would be yours from Nylon Calculus. That, that, right? that, that's what I have, and that very well could be. So, All right. Um, so your wind projections last year um, did the best out of uh, the ones that were publicly posted on the APBR forum, which is definitely a feather in your cap. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about how your wind projections are built uh, and anything that's new in the system this year. Sure, yeah, the, the wind was, you know, by, by the narrowest of mar- margins, it's well within the margin of error, but uh, it was it was among the top, which is which is pretty good. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I may, built mine uh, based on my uh, player tracking plus minus, uh, which is a statistical plus minus. Uh, these is both box score and player tracking data as well as uh, some play-by-play, and then blended that with uh, an adju- uh, regularized adjusted plus minus. That's kind of the basis. You know, it's a it's a player metric uh, system like most of the ones that are out there right now. And, uh, you know, then, then you get into the minutes projections and, and, uh, and scheduling. Uh, one of the things that's kind of, that I don't, I don't know, besides the, the player tracking plus minus that might be different is when I do my, um, when, when I do my reversion, because, you know, most players have a really good year. You expect them to decline a little bit, um, mm-hmm. is I, I use the minutes played as, as part of that because, uh, if a guy doesn't play, as much minutes statistically he's going to revert lower uh and so mm-hmm. that's one thing that i don't know if a lot of systems are using but it's kind of a simple thing you can do to help uh get a little bit better predictions and so your player tracking plus minus model statistical plus minus model you said so it's based on box score statistics and then what are the um what are the player tracking elements from sport view just roughly that you're included because i know some of them are are um uh, I lost the word now. Uh, effects combinations, right? Yeah, um, a, a few of them. The on the offensive side, you know, you use points created by assists rather than assists. That seemed to have a consistently a little better um, predictive ability. And then also for passes, use how many uh, assists they get per pass. Mm-hmm. So your more creative players like Manu Ginobili. Um, you might be a little bit older now, but in it, uh, a couple of years ago, or, or LeBron, that when they when they pass, you're getting a lot of assists as opposed to guys who are just trying to get rid of the ball. And mm-hmm. um, and then on the offensive side, also catch and shoot points, uh, which is a player tracking thing. That those are actually a little bit more valuable, at least within the model. Uh, than than other points because it's that's capturing some of your your stretch element. Um, okay. The and then, and there's rim protection stuff as well. And then on the defensive side, uh, you've got the rim protection, both how often they're they're uh, protecting the rim, and then how well they did it, and uh, as well as uh, how they're defending two point shots. Just any two point shots is is another element that that tracks pretty well. Three point shots, it turns out, is basically noise. Uh, if you look at year to year, there's only two years of data, but uh, somebody who is good at 
defending three-point shots year one no has uh, no relationship to how they do two, year two. So I uh, just sort of took those out of the model. Okay. Um, so you also, for Nylon Calculus, once you had your win projections built, you also uh, you did a separate post where you looked at the uh, schedule rating for each right. team. So you used your projections to model each team's schedule and then sort of come up with a, with a win equivalent. Um, so you had the Cavs at, at the Eastern uh, – or as the easiest schedule, right. and almost everybody in the Eastern Conference had an easier schedule than the West. Uh, the Warriors obviously have the easiest schedule in the West by virtue of not having to play themselves. That's, yeah, exactly. I have the Warriors up at at 66 wins, which is I, I think I'm sort of surprised was the the highest I, I've seen. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of that depends on on some good health, but they also don't really have any any bad players or, or very many bad players on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, they they had the best uh, easiest record in in the West, and I think it was about 1.4 1.5 overall average going from east to west. Um, and the Cavs, by being in the East and then not having to play the Cavs, uh, came out as, as the easiest. And the second easiest were, were the Celtics, which is actually part of that you know 49-win uh, projection. So one of the things that's interesting to me, then, is you, see, you look at this chart, and the difference between the easiest schedule in the league and the hardest schedule in the league is four wins, 39 uh the the opponent win equivalent for the Cleveland Cavaliers is looks like their their average opponent is thirty nine uh, is a thirty nine win team and the Lakers have the hardest schedule at a forty three win right. team uh, so that, I mean that's a fairly significant difference that's something that could swing a playoff race that's something that you know right. uh, schedule makers you know have a lot of power then yeah it, and by being the worst you know it it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it the Cavaliers, I think most people think, are the best team in the East, so they have the easiest schedule. And the Lakers, I think most people who, who aren't Lakers fans think they're probably the worst team in the West. So they're the worst team in the toughest conference. So you know they, they don't have even those nights off against the Lakers. So it, it, it does, it does uh, uh, swing some. But when you look, I think, among the upper tier in the West – it's not as big a difference because they're all playing each other, but they also get their, their uh, nights off um, against some of the, the lower competition in the West. So it, it, it does make a big difference overall, but in terms of the playoffs, I think it'll probably play out a little bit less because those teams uh, are a little, little bit closer. So this might be a weirdly closed sort of static loop, but ha- what would happen if you used these schedule uh, ratings and sort of fed them back into the uh, back into the win projections? Oh no, that, uh, it, it is it is included in, in the. Oh, it is so, okay. So you could say the uh, the Celtics, I think, had I think were a game and a half below average. So if they had a, an average schedule, they would be somewhere closer to forty-seven wins. Uh, okay, but they've got. Uh, you know those nights against all those Atlantic uh, opponents who my model didn't think were very good. Though uh, I think the Knicks sort of show, showed us up a little bit uh, tonight. <laughs> so, um, so what are uh, what are some of the things that you feel like your model does a good job of capturing, and maybe some things that your model uh, misses or sort of you know, can't adequately account for? You know. Uh, you know, most of the ones out there 
than public are, are kind of similar. We're, we're adding up players. Um, so you're assuming a sort of linearity about it. And that works pretty well, but, uh, you know, I think that's something I have to look into. Is that really true? If we, you know, is the average best or, or, you know, should we also be looking, giving greater weight to the the best player on the court? Is that um, an element? You know, like you look at what happened in, in Miami after LeBron left or, or Cleveland after he left the first time and guys who looked like pretty good players no longer did uh, once that superstar was gone. So uh, I think, I think that is probably those nonlinearities, uh, you know, can we capture those? And I'm sort of looking at some some lineup data now to see if I can go into that. But uh, five man lineups are, are kind of tough to deal with because they don't really play together that long, as I, as I sort of found out. So, yeah, there was another really interesting separate post you had on Nylon Calculus that just a a small fraction of of minutes are played by those five man units. Right, even the the, the highest one on the team. For the average team, I think I found in the last four years, it was the longest playing five-man lineup was 500 minutes, which is about 12% of the season. So um, even at 500 minutes, that's usually the cutoff for a player or, or somewhere right around there where you say we can even look at his numbers and figure out what he's doing on, on the um, on the court. So so it, it, that's that's a challenge, but that's something I think that it would would help is like are these non-linearities and how much is the superstar adding to his teammates that we maybe don't pick up in the box score or, or that we're misattributing so so you've also been very humble about your win uh last year uh in the the win projection contest and you have mentioned in a few places that a lot of it was luck and a lot of it was sort of getting lucky with with uh who got injured, who missed significant portions of the season. How do you handle minute projections and um, and thinking about something like a player who, who has an injury history, so somebody like Derek Rose um, right. or, you know, maybe Paul George this year, you know, questioning how often both like the, that the Pacers will play him and maybe be more careful with him um, and the likelihood that he re-injures that, right. there, that line. There, there are two uh, statistical um, – things that that I used to try and project minutes. One was developed, I believe I had Kupfer, if I'm saying that right. And and he he said that, you know, you look at how many games how many they played per game and you make a really a small adjustment on a a per game basis. I think it's like for every six games they missed last year you take off one this year because there's really kind of a a, a regression to the mean that Injury history has some effect, but not as much. And then I, I did another one um, that factors in age, how well they played, uh, measured by a, a box score um, measures last year, and then how many minutes they played. And then, a, and then a third one for rookies that just really looks at where they get, where the guy get drafted, because uh, rookies are hard to guess. But the, the biggest thing just seems to be. If he went number one overall or number two, he's going to play a lot. And then uh, the further down they go, the less they play. And then you get all that together. But when guys move around, I still end up having to make sort of subjective adjustments to say, well, I don't have enough point guard minutes on this team because they lost their starting point guard last year. So somebody else has to 
has to take those minutes. So, so there's still uh, a good amount of uh, guesswork in, in what I'm doing on, on that end. Um, so something like the Utah Jazz point guard situation, for example, right. where it's sort of unclear exactly how they're going to fill those minutes, and some of them maybe are, you know, big lineups where Hayward's handling the ball and they don't have a, a traditional point right. guard. Right. That, yeah, that's, like that. that's a perfect example. Or, or Portland um, lost all their starters, and so you've got guys uh, coming in who were not starters um, where they were coming from, or or Myers Leonard who was not a starter, but you just have to have to kind of make some, some guesswork on that. Who's going to be the starters and, and, and uh, who does it look like the, their, uh, the, t- the team is looking to. So looking, so looking at your actual win projections, you've got Golden State at 66 um, and a huge gap between them and the next closest team, which is San Antonio at 59. Right. Um, so, and you mentioned before that part of that is that they, you know, don't have a lot of bad players on the roster. Um, is that a is that a projection that you're feeling confident on? Or no, is that that's actually one that I, I look at that and and I was like, well, wasn't there some way I could uh, revert that down? But um, you know, Steph uh, Curry, uh, I think was was the best player in, in player tracking plus minus last year, and and uh, um, you know, even treating them sort of fairly, and, and uh, assuming he's going to play a little less minutes, and Clay's going to play a few less minutes, they they still came out uh, um, that high. So we'll see, um, we'll we'll see how they do, but they 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 look good on on paper. A couple other that I thought were interesting was it seems like a, a couple other statistical models that we've looked at are a little bit lower on Atlanta. See more regression from them this year. Do you still have them as the number two seed in the East and 50 wins? Right. Uh, any, any thoughts on why your why your model maybe doesn't see them dropping off quite as much? You know, well they're dropping from from 60 wins to to 50, so that's so it's still a, a drop. But um, you know, I'm and it. Have to probably look under the hood and see who they're they're expecting to to play minutes on that team, but um, but yeah, we'll we'll see, we'll see how that how that one goes. Also, I think one that I was uh, surprised with how the model came out was actually Utah, which you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. They came out lower than I really thought uh, they were going to play. Part of that was just uh, the guard situation. Um, the the metrics that I was using didn't like any any of the models and, and I'm blending it with a adjusted plus minus and it's sort of surprising me is that even though in player tracking plus minus uh Gobert came out as uh one of the top centers, his uh adjusted plus minus was, was not good. Or was was okay. It was just okay. So um whether or not that's uh Will, will play out over the season. We'll see. But I was sort of surprised that I th- I'd, I'd expected them, I guess, along with the conventional wisdom, to be, you know, forty-three wins up to you know that in that eight seed, maybe seven seed spot in the West. But uh, but that's it's not the way it came out. So. And the flip side of that then is is your model has Dallas in at the eighth seed at forty wins. Yes. Yeah. And that's one that, um, sort of struggled with, you know, how I didn't lean on the, you know, the, I don't have a good projection as injuries is another one to, to look at in the future on what's, you know, what's, um, what, how's Chandler going to come back? Uh, how's Wesley going to come back? Um, 
and how many minutes are they going to to play and 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 so you know those are I think clearly their two best players and Zaza Pachulia is actually kind of a guy who's like uh the stats really like I think more than his reputation is um so so we'll you know we'll see and then there's the tanking factor which I think I mentioned this online um the biggest sort of conventional wisdom was right and my model was, was wrong last year it was Minnesota um and some of it was injuries but then also at some point they just said we're just going to play play the young guys and uh and and uh, go for the the top pick which they which they got so there's always that risk for some of those somewhat worse teams like a Portland or, or well re- re- rebuilding teams that uh you know also the, the minute situations get skewed and they're playing guys who they wouldn't be playing if they were looking to maximize uh wins do you see anybody like that uh, this year who hypothetically hits that situation and, and sort of packs it in early? I guess Dallas would be a possibility. Dallas, but... Dallas is a possibility. They've got the pick that they owe to uh, the Celtics. It's top seven protected, so they would have to really uh, tank pretty hard and, and start early. Um, I don't know if that's something that they really want to do. but Tanking early and often. Yeah, <laughs> early and often. They have to tank, you know, tank, tank hard and go home. Um and then uh, Portland, who lost four of the five starters again, and uh, they have Lillard, but he's locked up for a five-year deal. So if they were going to tank, this actually would be a good good year in that sense to get their pick and then start using that, that pick along with Lillard to rebuild around. So I, I see that as, as, as a risk. Um, and then Denver possibly too. And they're pretty they're pretty far down the list anyway. Yeah, they were they're about uh twenty eight, I think, if I remember uh right. And so, you know, if if things are not going well, do they try and uh trade Gallinari and and, and play all, all the young they have a lot of young, interesting players, but uh usually those those guys don't produce a lot of wins, at least in their first couple years. Mm-hmm. Um so because your because the player tracking data is a is sort of a significant component of of your model or a at least a component. Um, how are you feeling about having it now a third year of of public data to sort of feed into that and refine and see what's meaningful and what's not? I, I think that that can only only help and and they keep uh, releasing more data and they release it actually all the way back to that's the nice thing about the player tracking data is when they come up with a new stat. They can just run through uh, all the digital data they have and and produce that for for years in the in the past. So um, I haven't really gotten into any of the new stuff yet, but you know it can only help to have uh, have more data and and see how it reacts. Having the second year actually was was a big uh, a big plus because you can see you know year to year what's really kind of a reliable measure or, and what what isn't. You know, which which is harder to tell with with just one year of data it might look like oh this guy's a great great at defending the three point shot but n- then there was you know, no correlation year to year so you sort of realize that that's just that's just luck. Nice. Um, so last question: If you uh, if your projections win the the APBR contest again this year, how are you going to celebrate? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be Miller time. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be 
Yeah. Actually, probably something better, probably. Right. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> All right, Andrew, thanks right. a lot for taking the time, and we'll uh, we'll check in with you again during the season about some other stuff you're working on. All right, great. Thanks, Ian. guest on the uh, Nylon Calculus Win Projection uh, podcast episode is Nick Restifo. Um, so Nick, your model, I think, uh, probably the most unfamiliar to uh, some of our readers, certainly was the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the most unfamiliar to me as I was reading your description, your breakdown, um, some things that were outside of my, my skill set. So I'm wondering if you can give people sort of a, a basic overview of how the model's built, uh, how it works, and what's included in it. Sure. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so what my model is built off of, and there's a lot of things that go into it, and obviously some things that don't go into it. Um, the, uh, the main thing is the, the main stats I include are um, a version of JE's uh, RAPM, or RIPM, um, and I also include wind shares and, and BPM, or block box plus minus. Um, so that's the main difference between me and Nathan uh, Walker's uh, model or Andrew Johnson's model, um, where Andrew Johnson uses a player tracking plus minus uh, metric that he built uh, mainly, um, and Nathan uses also uses blocks plus minus, um, but real plus minus as well, the one that ESPN um, has been having JE uh, do for the last two years. Um, so basically what it is is um, like – like other models, I project minutes and I um, use those minutes, like a share of minutes, um, to come up with weighted sums of uh, wind shares, box plus minus, and RIPM uh, for both um, for both uh, two years ago and the past year. And in the case of RIPM, I also create like a projected RIPM uh, weighted sum. Um, for the for the current uh, season, so that it baked into that is like how many minutes um, a player played last year, um, and also age curve because you know you know players get better as they age until they hit their peak, um, and then they get a little worse. So that projected uh, wrap them uh, sort of bakes all that information into there. Um, so I I have different models for to to predict minute share um, and that projected wrap them for both uh, rookies and veterans because uh, it's a different set of information. Um, so for the rookies, for example, it's based on draft pick, uh, the, the actual pick number, um, but also their, my draft model's projection of them, which is a whole different thing, uh, but I use those values as well, um, and their age, whereas for the veterans and, and stuff already in the league, um, their uh, RAPM is, is projected based on um, you know, their RAPM from the year before and their, and their age and their minutes and stuff like that. Um, so basically, once I once I have those weighted sums of those of those seven uh, value statistics um, for, for for each team uh, weighted accordance to each each player's minutes, um, there are, are three different models that actually predict the games um, based on that information and also information um, on like both teams' rest leading into the game um, and the altitude the game is played at and even the distance traveled, um, which isn't very important but it's also in there. Um, and then I simulate the season 10,000 times. Um, I think my, 
my model and my projection system is one of the only to include rest and altitude. Um, so, the, so there are some information interesting things that come up uh, with that information baked in. Um, so yeah, so it's a combination of, um, you know, projecting minutes and statistics for certain players and using their previous information, using that to uh, create a sum for each team in, in those various statistics, uh, and then using some of the game information as well um, to predict how teams will do um, during, during each game and then over the season, how well they'll do. So. So I think that's when we, when you compare your models to both our other models and nylon calculus and really anything else I've seen, um, I, I, I personally haven't seen anything else where the model's based on simulation. So it seems like um, I have some other questions about the underlying sure. stuff, but it seems like your, your process, you are getting to the same place that everybody else is. You're using, you're projecting player performance, you're projecting minutes, and you're getting to like a projected uh, uh, point differential for each team. And then everybody else is using that uh, and maybe with a few tweaks to, to project wins. And you are using yeah. that point differential then to simulate every game along with the added factors of travel and rest. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's basically right. And there are some, there are some weird things that go into that. Uh, well, some, I wouldn't say, well, maybe not weird things, but some quirks. For example, if I, if, because my model is simulation based um, and it's the, the winner of a game, uh, you know, there's win probabilities for each team in each game. Uh, but because it's, it's a 10,000 simulations, um, dependent on a, on a random number uh, for determining the winner, um, however likely that winner will be, it'll be slightly different each time uh, I run it. So the simulation, the, the one I produced as my win projections was, was one that, you know, was picked because it minimizes um, the difference between the mean, uh, but even that can change if I, if I run it again. It could change very slightly, you know, another win or two here for another team. Um, and that's that's something that's kind of weird about it, um, but that's also reflective of the way life works, right? Things yeah. things are random. Um, there is definitely um, um, people would like to think the world is random than it actually is. Um, so <laughs> I'm okay with uh, the the simulation being a little bit different each time, um, as long as it's not too different, which it which it isn't really. So, so just to clarify, so you, you've got your 10,000 simulations, mm -hmm. you take an average of the 10,000 simulations, and then you picked, your projections are not the average, your projections are the one simulation out of the 10,000 that most closely resembled the average, is that right? That's, that's exactly it. Um, yeah. so, it, so it is a sort of like unique, uh, a unique snowflake, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's not it an amalgamation. It's not a an average. It's it's a unique snowflake. That's uh, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it can't, like I said, yeah, it can change. Uh, but it's you know it's always pretty similar. Um, there, you know, a few teams might have a win more, a win less, um, because it is the one out of ten thousand that is it is the one iteration that is uh, closest to you know the center um, for all of them. So it will be pretty similar each time, but not exactly the same. Um, so yeah, it's it's a little a weird quirk of you know uh, including stuff like the rest and altitude um, that you need to look at on a game to game basis.
Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about, and just cause I'm curious, cause I don't totally understand the concepts, but you, when you talk about sort of building that baseline for the team, mm-hmm. you talked about using, um, techniques, I know regression models, you talked about using techniques called neural networks. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about neural networks and those, um, that feed into the, the player projections and their projected share of minutes. Yeah. So I, I use neural networks, uh, throughout, um, throughout my modeling, um, neural can be used um, to predict both uh, continuous and and binary variables. So I, I use them. I use versions of neural networks both to project wrap uh, uh, to project uh, minutes, but also which are continuous variables, but also to project uh, things like whether or not a team wins. Um, you know, which is a binary variable, either it happened or it didn't. Um, and the, all the neural networks in my in my model for the neural network people who may or may not be listening are, are single layer feed for, forward neural networks. Um, and, oh, all right. And, <laughs> and uh, a neural network, um, it's uh, kind of uh, sexy, for lack of a better word, um, and it can be very very powerful um, and powerfully accurate. Um, but it's the biggest flaws behind neural networks are um, it's prone to overfitting. And it, um, you don't really, I mean, you do know, but like, it can be very black box. Like you can throw something in there and get out and you can get a prediction without really understanding what's happening. Um, and the way they work, uh, to give a really simplified version of, of how most of them work, um, you know, it's a neural network algorithm will find weights, uh, for your input variables. Um, and, and then it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, It'll add those uh, weights up. It'll use those weights to add your inputs up together, um, and then there's a hidden layer. Um, and if your your values that come out of the uh, the neural the neurons that feed into each of your respective hidden layers uh, pass a certain activation function, uh, then that uh, pers- pass a certain um, activation threshold, then that value will be passed further down the neural network um, and eventually reach your output. Um, so that's, uh, uh, so what neural networks can do is unlike uh, linear regression, which, um, you know, has, you know, basically like a linear relationship, 0.5 uh, times X plus seven. Uh, and that's going to be your, your relationship throughout the whole thing. Um, you know, you could start off of a very small value. You can have a nonlinear relationship where you have, you know, for the first half of uh, X, you could have a very small value for Y, and then it accru- increases dramatically at the end. So um, it, can, it can capture nonlinear relationships um, pretty effectively uh, on the whole. So those are, you know, those are, I use those both to project uh, minutes and wrap them. Um, it's especially useful for uh, for minutes. It does a really good job of of figuring out which players are those players that will play 3,000 minutes a, a season or like 38 minutes a game or something like that. Um, and does a really good job of assigning uh, an appropriate amount of minutes, which definitely don't scale um, in a linear fashion. Um, so neural networks are, are pretty useful for that. Do you do any manual adjustments on the minutes played? Um, having just talked to Andrew and Nathan, um, both of them talked about some sort of like weird, uh, weird situations like Utah with Exum's injury where, um, where the Jazz might experiment with some lineups where they're not using a traditional point guard. And so the, the way they modeled those minutes played sort of necessitated some manual adjustments. 
Um, so yeah, uh, yes and no. Uh, so this is gets to another weakness of mine that I know is, is kind of a strength of Andrew's model. Um, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he uses, um, when, he, when he has his projected minutes, I believe he uses sort of like a depth, depth chart style approach where, you know, you fill the minutes in with the player that comes first on the depth chart. I'm not sure exactly how he does it um, and what the exact methodology is. But um, so when I have my minutes projections, obviously they don't always equal the appropriate amount of minutes in a season. Um, so you have to kind of scale them down. Um, so I just kind of scale them all down in, in sort of a uniform fashion. Um, so this, uh, this is going to be the same percent um, for both the season um, and then when it's scaled down. Um, of that total amount. Um, whereas Andrew, I think he manipulates them um, via like a depth chart style format, which kind of reflects reality more um, in a way. And that's maybe something I want to, uh, I want to add uh, next year. Um, as far as manual adjustments go, um, I don't really do anything where I actually change the projected minute share. Uh, the, I guess the thing that I do that would be closest to that um, is in, I have a file that um, lists all the, current injuries that we know about for each player. Um, and it's, I have in there an estimated date of return, um, which is really <laughs> something I just punched in at, at like looking um, on different sites and seeing when people expect uh, players to be back. And of course that can change dramatically. Uh, so that's kind of a manual subjective, uh, not totally subjective, but kind of, uh, you understand what I'm saying? A kind of like a yeah. change um, that's not really driven statistically. It's just driven by whatever someone said to this website where I got the information. So, <laughs> um, so looking at your model, um, yeah, I know you've got these these travel and rest elements that that uh, are are maybe not in some other models. What are some other things that you feel like your model captures that maybe other models aren't capturing? Um, and then maybe some things that your model is is either uh, maybe not capturing or maybe overemphasizing or something like that. Yeah. So the altitude and rest is is the big thing. Um, so I'm looking right now on my left. Uh, I've got Nathan's and Andrew's projections next to me. Um, and they both have, uh, for example, they both have Denver at, at 27, um, and I have them at 31. Um, and I actually wrote a while back, a few months back, it was actually the first article I ever wrote for Nylon Calculus, um, a thing about altitude. And uh, in it, I said it could give Denver and Utah um, approximately four wins a season. Um, and the difference between both mine both, both Nathan and Andrew's <laughs> model and mine is exactly four wins. Um, so that's more of a coincidence or anything else, a lucky coincidence for me. Uh, but it is funny how things work out like that. Um, so there's, uh, that, that's one example of, of, of something that mine includes. Um, another thing mine includes that is both, both a benefit in some situations um, and a, a detriment in others that uh, other wind productions, at least like the nylon ones don't include, is is wind shares. Uh, now, wind, share, wind shares can definitely help with the predictive power of the models because they are adding additional information that uh, uh, I, I am of the, fully of the RP, RPM, RAPM, you know, camp that it's the best single statistic we have for predicting um, future outcomes um, and the best at evaluating players currently, uh, the statistics in that family. Um, but wind shares, you know, whenever you add uh, statistic, whether it adds, whenever you add a number, whether it adds uh, a very tiny bit or an insignificant bit or it adds a lot, um, you can't lose information by adding 
uh, another another variable. You could get into the trouble of making a bad model, but at the very least, WinShares is adding a little bit something more that the other statistics don't have. Um, so this is a good thing, and that increases predictive power. Uh, it's a bad thing uh, when it overemphasizes certain uh, players who are very prone um, to be having very high win share value just because of the way they play. Uh, the single best example of that is someone, uh, DeAndre Jordan. Uh, my model tends to like the Clippers uh, more than other models. Uh, about My model has 5.85 uh, wins more than the average of Nathan and Andrews. Um, and one of the reasons is that is that last year, DeAndre Jordan was the fifth-best player in the league by win shares. Um, and I can think of a lot of players that I'd rather have my team. Not to say that DeAndre Jordan is a bad player, um, but I can think of a lot of players I'd rather have on my team before DeAndre Jordan. Um, he's, a good, he's a good player. Um, he's a bit overrated defensively, um, but he does project to play a lot of minutes, and he has a large minute waiting. Um, so... When the models look at, uh, you know, the previous year's win shares, which is, uh, you know, not the biggest, it's always uh, pretty much all the models consider um, the projected RAFM the, the, the most important thing in determining um, a winner of a game. But win share is definitely a contributing factor. And when the model looks at that um, and it gets, it gets that high sum from DeAndre Jordan for a team like the Clippers, um, it, it considers that and might tend to overrate the Clippers a little bit. Um, at least that's, that's what I'm getting out of, out of looking at other win projections so far. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that would be I, a, a difference. <laughs> every model seems like it has little quirks, little things that are yeah. sort of noticeably different, little bubbles in, in, in weird places. Um, and one of the things I noticed looking at yours is you have um, – you, you have Golden State a couple wins maybe below some of the other projections we've looked at, but you you are the top four in the Western Conference. You have really high. So you have Golden State at 60, the Clippers at 59, San Antonio at 59, Houston at 57, and all four of those teams above Cleveland at 56, which is sort of funny because there's this perception that the Eastern Conference is terrible and that Cleveland's going to sort of feast on the East this year. Um but but your your model uh, sees the West, um, you know, as almost more top heavy uh, mm -hmm. in terms of these win values. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm here to defend that a little bit. Um, I think like if you think about it, you know, if we remove like statistics from it and we just think about it sort of in a subjective, logical way. Um, what team, so you have the Golden State who are, are world beaters and they're, they're amazing um, and they're young and they're returning, you know, pretty much the same team. And that team is really, really, really good. Um, and people like to say that they had a tough time uh, on the road to the finals, but they like to say that about any team. And the truth is they really didn't. Um, you know, they, they won in, in six games and, and, they, and they didn't, other than like the Memphis series, they didn't really come into too much trouble. And um, if you think about those other top teams in the West, like the Clippers, the Spurs, and Houston, uh, the Clippers, the Clippers, the biggest thing about the Clippers were the bench. They added Josh Smith and Lance Stevenson. The Spurs added LaMarcus Eldridge. Houston added Ty Lawson. All of these teams took pretty major steps to get better. Um, and I think that's reflected in my model um, that, you know, the West, the top of the West, it is top heavy. Um, and, there are those those teams I think are all capable of 
at least sniffing. I'm not saying they're going to win 60 games, um, but at least putting themselves in a position where it's a possibility. Um, and yeah, so uh, you know, I think I think that is th- that's accurate. One of the other things that happened with well, my projections is I put um, something on Twitter a few days ago uh, that was it wasn't it didn't include a neural network prediction in it. It included a logistic regression prediction um, and just the logistic regression part because that's also included in, in these numbers here. And that projection was a lot more aggressive on the edges. <laughs> And I got a little bit of flack for that, especially for I had a I had an iteration where the Minnesota Timberwolves and we talk about how um, you know it could be like a unique snowflake. The Minnesota Timberwolves were actually only projected to get 11 wins, uh, which set off a little bit of a reaction. Um, and that 11 wins was actually eight wins below the 10,000 iteration average. Um, so that was just kind of a weird thing that happened, but. Uh, yeah, I could change that if I want to. I could make those uh, if I take out the neural network, which is a bit, a little bit more centered. Uh, the logistic regression will take top teams and those bottom teams and separate them out uh, a little more. Uh, cool, cool. So, how confident are you feeling on your projection on your projections? And I know we were talking about this earlier that this is. Um, uh, a model that you haven't used necessarily for wind projections before, but you're hoping to use it for some stuff in season. Yeah, so I wrote the code with the um, uh, to be dual purpose. Um, so th- this is part of the reason I, I formatted it the way I did and didn't do like a Pythagorean win sum uh, like most uh, preseason projections are done. Um, and also because I wanted to include stuff like rest and altitude, but uh, the big reason is because I'm, I'm hoping to use it as, a, as you know, I'm killing two birds with one stone. At the time it took to write this code, it's also going to be used for um, hopefully stuff where I do like some in-season projections and, um, you know, estimate. Uh, maybe I get to a place where I estimate, es- es- estimate spreads, but maybe more likely just estimate winners with a percentage. Um, so that's something I want to do. And also I want to take a look at uh, in-season projections of, of stuff like minutes, um, and, and, and wrap them. And, um, we could do stuff where you, you, you can make any predictions that are done in season are going to be a lot better than predictions you make preseason because new information comes in. So I've kind of written the code for this to be, to be ready to handle information that, you know, comes in from the seasons that are coming in now or games are being played and finished. Um, and so we can get better and better and better as the season progresses in terms of making predictions of what what happens. Cool. So we'll have some more stuff to talk about. Um, yeah, definitely. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and we'll yeah we'll definitely check in with you later in the season and uh, and see how these are doing. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.